welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm talking with Colgate Vice President and Dean of the College, Paul McLaughlin. McLaughlin came to Colgate in 2017 after spending the previous five years as the Dean of Students at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. At Lafayette, McLaughlin partnered with faculty to link living and learning at the college, developed the Connected Communities Program as part of a presidential task force on integrated student experience, and received the Cyrus S. Fleck Jr. Administrator of the Year Award as a result of students' nominations of him. Prior to his arrival at Lafayette, McLaughlin held a series of positions at Harvard University, starting as Assistant Director for Health and Medical Careers Counseling with the Office of Career Services in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and finishing as Associate Dean of Harvard College and Senior Advisor to the Dean of Harvard College. Paul also served as an adjunct faculty member in Boston College's Lynch School of Education. During his decade in Cambridge, he created social spaces, spaces for Harvard College Women's Center, as well as prayer spaces for Muslim students. He established the Student Organization Center at Hillis, a space dedicated for student life and student organizations. His participation in a comprehensive LGBTQ student services review resulted in general neutral housing policies and the creation of the Harvard College BGLTQ Student Center. Since arriving at Colgate, McLaughlin has worked to develop the Residential Commons Program, advance goals connected to Colgate's third century plan, and enhancing the student experience, integrating wellness, and the university's diversity, equity, and inclusion goals. Overseeing a large division, McLaughlin has focused on staff development and the student experience. McLaughlin earned his bachelor's degree from Miami University in Ohio, where he majored in zoology and minored in neuroscience. He received his master's degree in higher education and student affairs administration from the University of Vermont and earned his PhD in higher education and administration from Boston College. Dean McLaughlin, welcome to 13. Hey, Dan. Uh, Nice to be here. All right, we're going to jump right into question one. You started at Colgate as the vice president and dean on July 26, 2017. Can you talk, I guess, briefly a little bit um, about some of the things that your division has undertaken since you started that you might be most proud of? Wow, yeah. Um, It's sort of fun as I've been thinking so much about the future. It's a a nice opportunity to sort of reflect on the past. Uh, And it's also crazy that three years, uh, anniversaries just around the corner. Um, I think that probably the first thing I'd say is that I, I think we've done a really great job of, um, I think, putting some emphasis on the residential experience for students. Um, and surely, you know, a lot of that manifested itself even in the third century plan in terms of thinking about the residential commons. When I arrived, the commons were still relatively new. We, in fact, that year was the first year for the third and fourth residential commons. Um, And I think that what we saw was a a new structure for residentiality um, kind of placed on top of an an existing structure for the dean of the college division. 
And over the last three years, really thinking about how to have the residential commons be the foundation of a student's entry point into Colgate. Um, that's not to say that the other you know, 18 departments beyond residential life and the dean of the college aren't really important. And, and I hope we'll talk about those too. But I think that the way I see it is that the residential commons are the place where we welcome students and begin to build that sense of belonging. We begin to help them learn about themselves and others. And again, through the Alana Cultural Center or LGBTQ initiatives or the chaplaincy, all of the other sort of ways in which we do that, that there is a stronger foundation in the residential commons today and that the dean of the college division is supporting that um, in more intentional ways I think is a is a highlight um, of the of the sort of my first three years here. Um, I guess I'd also put right up there at, at that um, highlight level the staff. Um, we've done a really, I think, a really good job of working as one division. Sort of ironic thing to say, one division, <laughs> um, but it is um, it is the case that when I uh, arrived, I think that the departments that comprise the DOC were working really well, um, largely independently. There were definitely some collaborations, but I think setting up uh, additional structures like working groups and uh, committees and thinking about assessment as a division or how we help students think about sense of belonging, or we had a working group over the last year thinking about food insecurity for students. So so thinking about sort of meta-level student experience questions and allowing those to be worked on across the division, I think has allowed us to work as a, as a really strong team. Um, and we've also hired a lot of um, folks in the division over the last three years, and I think done a, a, a good job of onboarding them and 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 immediately finding ways to leverage their strengths. Um, and I think that's true for uh, longstanding staff as well. Really focusing on strengths and and how we can utilize those across the division. Um, so I'd say those are probably the two things that for me are um, you know highlights of the first three years. And I do want to dig into that a little bit. I think most people might not understand, you know, how the dean of the college at Colgate is set up. And I know that, um, or the division itself, um, which we, you know, refer to as the DOC and Colgate speak here. Um, So you have about 90 staff that report to you from, you said, 18 different departments. Um, It might be 18 or 19 even. Um, Wow. First services came into my division last summer. Um, Okay. Yeah. Can you just give kind of the broad overview of the the types of things on campus that kind of fall under your purview? Uh, sure. So, um, you know, if you think about like, again, um, for me, I always think uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So, so I think, you know, if folks think about the DOC as supporting students outside of the classroom, I think in some ways that begins with environmental health and safety, emergency management, campus safety, right? Like we, we've got to have that. And then residential life is sort of the next place, like where where they lay their head at at night and then where they build community. Um, And then I think on top of that, we have a bunch of support services. So I would put the administrative deans um, at the top of that list and really kind of being a generalist to help students with 
really any and everything. We've got the counseling center and the health center, of course, again. So we think about the health and um, mental health and physical health of students, as well as the wellness center, sort of really wrapping around and providing holistic support. So the Shaw, Shaw Wellness Institute is in the DOC. Um, and then we have some identity-based programs. Um, I should also not um, neglect to mention the chaplaincy as a place that's both sort of an identity-based place um, in terms of helping students celebrate their faith and religious observances and even explore, but also they serve as chaplains. So um, they have a, a level of confidentiality um, given to them by the state so that they in some ways are a little bit of, uh, like counselors. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think students uh, really appreciate that. Um, we also have the Alana Cultural Center and LGBTQ plus initiatives. Students, of course, um, want to belong in memberships that around interests. So we have things like the Center for Student Leadership and Involvement, uh, Fraternity and Sorority Advising, um, uh, the Office of International Student Services. Uh, so I don't know that I've got up to 20 yet. I'm sure I've um, left out some. But uh, And then, of course, career services, as we think about how do we prepare students for career readiness, explore who they are and how they want to live um, purposeful um, lives and, and find purposeful work. Um, so what's great about my division, I think, um, is that it, it has the, this um, awesome opportunity to help develop students over four years. And, you know, there are definitely some places like new student orientation or the first year experience, which comes and goes, but almost every other department in the division is touching a student all throughout the entire four years and, and needing to develop, therefore, a set of sort of um, resources and support that's developmentally appropriate. What a first year student needs is so different from what a senior needs. And um, <clears throat> I think that my staff really finds joy in watching the, that development. And, and helping students along that trajectory. And then, of course, um, because Colgate alums, thankfully, are so involved, I think our staff also benefit from watching our alumni grow and develop for years um, and stay in, you know, in touch with us. And, you know, since you've started working on campus, you've had several of those departments undergo either major reviews or external reviews or reorganizations. There's been new hires. There's been some different philosophy. And I know some of the major changes have come in our student health services. Um, mm. so I don't know if you wanted to talk for a little bit about, you know, um, student health services and how, I guess, you're looking at it moving forward, how it might change or how it's already changed. And also, I know at the Counseling Center, they had kind of a you know, an external review as well that kind of looked at the support that they provide for our students. Yeah, so <clears throat> for the sort of um, folks who may not kind of be in the, have the insider baseball, an external review in many ways is an opportunity to compare your work or your department's work with industry best practice, the most sort of recent literature, and to have it reviewed by practitioners and scholars from other institutions. Um, so you're essentially bringing in some observers, they're spending a few days here talking with students, ideally with staff members in that department, and then other departments that are, interact with that department, and then ultimately producing sort of a report for me about here, here, here what we think as external reviewers the, the department is doing phenomenally well in, here are some areas that we think that they could 
um, improve their services. And in a way, it's not a strategic plan, but it can inform a department's strategic plan because it's not as insular as a strategic plan that is sort of in a bubble. It it allows you to kind of pull the aperture back and see how does it fit vis-a-vis our peers and, again, national associations. So in the case of the Counseling Center, you know, I think that um, working with Dr. LaFrance, the director of the Counseling Center, I think there was a um, there is a desire to have additional interns interns in the center um, from Syracuse and others. And in order to do that, we need to have accreditation um, from a, an organization called IAX. And so part of our external review was also helping to fulfill uh, possible accreditation for the counseling center, which we were able to earn. And um, that allows us again to bring in interns and help diversify our staff, but also to provide more capacity. Um, And it also gives the counselors a wonderful opportunity to mentor young professionals in their profession. So so I think in an external view, sometimes can have a negative connotation. It's like you're going to bring it in as an excuse to reorganize or to do something. And I think for me, it's been about making sure that our services are the best they can be and to provide the staff in those departments sort of an external um, uh, point of view about what they do. And um, that was, you know, again, Counseling Center, I think, um, ended beautifully. Um, and uh, again, Dr. Nikki Keating, I think, was really instrumental in doing that self-review. So that's the other part that's really great is that it requires this like introspection mm-hmm. to be able to prepare materials to give to a review committee, a la Middle State. Commission on Higher Education, which accredits Colgate writ large. So the count, the the health center, I think for me was um, a little different. I, I wasn't seeking some accreditation, but I was wanting to acknowledge that the the way in which health service delivery on college campuses has changed over the last three decades, uh, which since Dr. Miller's uh, been here. Is, is significant. Um, and even the fact that the Shaw Wellness Center, for instance, plays a much stronger role, I think, in the acknowledgement of health on campus. There's a definite difference between, you know, two decades ago where we think about treating um, things versus preventing things. And it wasn't as if the health center never did prevention work or outreach, but it is obviously not their, their top priority. And so I think in, in pursuit of a more integrated wellness approach, which is also identified as a, as a goal in the third century plan for Colgate, it really was about making sure that the health center and the sort of student health services is working well with the counseling center and with the Shaw Wellness Institute. And I'm so glad to be able to report to you that that was actually one of the um, findings that was most noteworthy for our three external reviewers was just how collaborative our SHS staff is, in fact, all of those three units in ways that they had not seen and actually didn't experience on their own campus. We had a physician from Bucknell, one from Lafayette, one from Syracuse. And I think they were envious of the sort of tight relationships that we have. But I think that it was also about making sure that we were prepared in a more efficient, um, for more efficiency in the student health services area, that there had been changes in medical charting and there had been changes in how we think about telemedicine. And, um, and certainly there has been a greater need for mental health medication 
uh, over time. And so some of this was a little more responsive in the health center area, allowing us to ultimately what we did is change the staffing structure there and created a medical practice manager. You know, that's the thing that happened over time. It used to be that the chief physician of a health center might actually be the medical practice manager, but there's so many other things that need to happen from the MD that the medical practice manager can really try to focus it on the staff and some of the business operations of the unit so that the physician can be out doing outreach and working across campus. Um, Dr. Miller right now, for instance, is the incident commander for emergency operations current um, crisis, which is COVID-19. So for her to be there really means that this new structure, um, it, I mean, and it is awesome, right? So in hindsight, and we had a meningitis outbreak not long before that. And, uh, you know, other issues that I think will always pull our, um, Dr. Miller in some directions. We also added a second physician, um, thinking about a good succession plan and making sure that there are people who are cross-trained so that if one staff member's out, there are other people who know how to do that work. Again, when you think about COVID, uh, boy, am I glad that we have some of those systems in place right now because that's a, that's a reality that yeah. there may be a practitioner who needs to be out of, ta- out of work for 14 days or more. Um, so, you know, external reviews, again, I think for me is also a way to communicate to the staff as the vice president that we should always be continuous learners in our, in our practice and in our scholarship. And, um, I've invested heavily, um, financially, but also just sort of, um, encouraging staff to participate in professional development and, um, to be participating in their profession. Almost every one of those departments we mentioned earlier has a national association of practitioners and scholars. I want our staff to actually be um, in many ways illustrating for students how important lifelong learning is. And it's a great way to connect with students if you yourself are taking a class or pursuing another degree or writing a, you know, a paper for possible publication it's a great way to kind of remind ourselves what our students are doing every day. And it ensures that Colgate's Dean of the College Division is one that we can be really proud of and it gets our reach and reputation out. Um, I'm really happy to say that over the last couple of years, we've had more of our staff presenting at national conferences, publishing, getting the name out, um, which I think, again, helps us then recruit uh, and hire really great staff. You know, acknowledging that uh, no two days are probably ever the same for you. Uh, I'm curious what what your day looks like when you wake up. I mean, I know that the vice presidents at Colgate pretty much work all the time, but I'm I'm very curious as to what what is the day in the life of the dean of the college. It's so interesting that we're we're um, we're having this conversation in the middle of. COVID-19 pandemic planning. And um, I feel like if we had talked in January, I might answer this so differently than I am right now. So I'm going to try to do a little bit of both, right? Right now, you said no two days look alike. That's, that is like 95% true, except that recently, I feel like what I've been calling blurs days, because I really can't remember what the day is. I think all I do is actually talk about COVID and testing and tracing, isolation and surveillance and surveillance in terms of health and, and testing. And, um, 
And so right now it, it feels a little more monotonous than it, than it typically does. You're, you're right in some ways. So my background is um, I was a zoology major uh, at Miami University in Ohio and a neuroscience minor. And so my, um, my career aspirations for almost all four years uh, were to go into medical to go to medical school. <laughs> and I was always really interested in emergency medicine. So uh, my dean of students sort of um, is the one who uh, ultimately uh, encouraged me to go into higher education. And in some ways, I do feel like my job is like an emergency room, obviously with a lot less blood, thankfully. But it is true that I'm not sure what's going to come over the transom every day. And that is what really keeps me excited about the work. Um, it is also a challenge because not that challenge just because you don't know what's coming. That actually excites me. What's the challenge about it is that you need to respond to the things that come over the transom. At the same time, you need to stay focused on long-term goals and strategic direction. So you can't just answer the emails or put out the fires of the day and still move the needle in the ways you need to. You've got to do both, which I think for me right now is a big challenge as I think about how do we reopen the campus as soon as possible and as safely as possible. That is really consuming just hours and hours of my time. And I also recognize that we have important third century goals that we need to to address um, in order to enhance the student experience. And I have to be thinking about all of the goals across these departments that we set out to achieve back in September of the year and make sure that those staff have those resources and support, encouragement, direction in order to keep moving. And so this is the balance, I think, right now. Um, for, for me, I think that my top goal, um, you might think as the dean of the college, I would say that it might be the students, but I share in my head every day what's best for students and what do students need and actually what do staff need right now? Because as you said earlier, there are 90 staff in my division and they need I need to be thinking about their needs so that they can be thinking about the students' needs. That is a much better, if I'm not prioritizing staff and what it is that I need to do to support them, then it's me trying to think about how I help 2,900 students. And that's not nearly as effective um, as thinking about how 91 people, myself included, can help students. And so this is what I think about every day. Um, and it can be as an individual staff member's professional development and what they need. Um, and so I spend a lot of time on personnel issues. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I, I mean, this can be great conversations with staff about what it is that they want to do in their career and, and what it is they need in terms of resources to get there. Um, and, and, and also working with staff. So meeting with the residential life staff or thinking about how we are addressing intersectionality and identities. So what are the ways that LGBTQ and Alana and the chaplains are thinking about the fact that our students have multiple identities and we want to support them individually and collectively. So it's been a great, um, it, it does require a lot of work, as you said, uh, it is energizing work for me. Um, recently, I, ha I, I have been feeling tired, I will say. Typically, I think, you know, when I'm in the office and that, that does, I'm, I'm for sure um, probably lean on the extroversion scale. 
And so working from you know home and working remotely is has been a challenge. And also for whatever reason, Zoom is it, it feels just more difficult um, in terms of a way to connect with folks. Um, so so yeah, um, my calendars are busy. It, it, it's um, if there's any other challenge, and this is true probably for a lot of people uh, at Colgate as a small college, you wear multiple hats. Um, it's, it's the, the challenge of pivoting on a dime from one priority to the next, right? So when I hop out of a Zoom meeting about this, so we'll finish this, <laughs> and then I'll hop into potentially an interview for a new candidate for a position huh. into a cabinet meeting, um, followed by my senior leadership team meeting. That's what my day looks like today. And then I'm going to, I think I have about an hour set aside this afternoon to finish some performance reviews. Uh, for staff. So like it's, it's the ability to pivot that I think um, is both a challenge, but also essential to do the job well. One of those hats that you're currently wearing is uh, your co-chair of the newly established task force on reopening Colgate. So you, you folks are, are gathering to consider the various options for what the fall could look like. And I know there's a lot of questions. A lot of people are curious as to what's going to happen at Colgate in the fall. Uh, I know that we have a June 30th kind of deadline for letting people know or on or before. Um, can you talk a little bit about that work? Who is involved? And I guess, how are you folks approaching the different options that you have in front of you? Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a great question. Um, and I don't sigh out, out of exasperation. I'm just trying to think of how do I, uh, how do I make this interesting for the listener? Right, right. <laughs> um, what I, uh, so, so let me start with the people because the people produce the work uh, and have made the work actually really fun working through. So I haven't had a chance to work with many of the folks on this task force before, um, which are largely faculty. Um, so Myself and Dan Goff, um, who's the Associate Vice President for Emergency Management, Environmental Health and Safety, and Campus Safety, is the only other administrator on there um, with me. Uh, um, Juliana Smith is also the Deputy AD, but um, also lives in the faculty world. Um, so she's an administrator and in the, facu- in the Dean of the Faculty Division. And then it is largely faculty um, from the Sociology Department. We have three biologists on there uh, in geology and um, geography and and I think that in a way this has been such a um, it, it's a not a great reason to come together uh, a pandemic but it has been really nice to um, have the opportunity to work so closely with these colleagues um, and and the way we have approached this um, I'm coming back to sort of um, the I was thinking earlier about how when I was in, I, I had to take calculus one, two, and three in college, right? And I, I needed to, I needed many variables in order to solve a formula. I needed to know some quantities and there were others that I was solving for. And when it comes to responding to this pandemic and, and, and thinking about returning to campus, there are so many unknown variables. It's hard to solve for the, the equation because testing capability, we, we know what we need to do, but there are not sufficient testing. And there are different types of testing, PCR versus saliva-based testing. There's surveillance testing where you might test the wastewater, for instance, of a residence hall to give you a sense of whether there's an outbreak there soon versus diagnostic testing where you're testing individual people. And then there are rapid tests, which are 45 minutes and 24-hour tests. And so, and, and 
whether we test or whether we send these tests out. So, so testing alone is probably 20 variables. And then tracing is a whole nother sort of set of those considerations. Isolation is a little easier, but there's still no clear clarity about how many isolation beds one campus would need for their population in order to respond to people who test positive for COVID. So, so in some ways, we're not making it up as it goes along because that would not be that would not instill confidence in people. But we're trying to respond daily to the most um, like the best evidence that we can find. That the pieces we know from the literature clearly we're learning from other campuses who have come out earlier with their plans. Some of those are large research one universities that have summer programs or medical schools or dental schools that need to start in the summer. So we see earlier announcements. I think that in some ways people might say, well, why is Colgate waiting? Well, we don't start until the end of August. We know that the later we wait, the more information we'll have. But we also need to make a decision in time to prepare for the fall. So it's not that we're trying to unnecessarily delay, but we also know that our chances um, of knowing more later uh, every day, we learn a lot. Um, we're also waiting right now for guidance from the state of New York on institutions of higher education, which should receive some guidance from the governor on June 8th, just to give you an example. So some of this is also waiting for the right phase. So educational institutions in the state can't even open until phase four. The soonest that could be would be the end of June anyway. Um, I think the way that we think about this, um, and there was a time earlier this week, actually, I used this, I did say this, I said, there are so many variables in my head, my, I, I am not a CPU. <laughs> like, I, it is hard to hold it all, because for every particular element, there are 50 other considerations for it. And it is about a trade-off. So I think in some ways, what the task force did um, in its very first two meetings was actually not talk as much about the details I just mentioned about testing and tracing and isolation and classroom and de-densification and social distancing and all of those. What we talked about is a set of principles that would guide our work. What is it that we should be keeping top of mind throughout all of the conversation. So just as an example, we said that one of our principles is whatever plan we recommend, we want to be confident that it has a high chance of success. So we, we were not likely to be a bunch of gamblers who are like, let's just roll the dice and see how it goes. But knowing that as a task force early on made sure that we were on the same page. Um, and, and again, we came up with, and it, I'm not kidding you when I say that at the end of the day, there just were 13 um, principles, of course. Um, we could have gone to 14. I'm sure we could have condensed it to 12, but it just landed at 13 and we thought that was a good omen. Um, and, and we, again, I think return to those. We, we reference them. We think a lot about them. Another one, for instance, is we have to take care of the community in which we live. So the county and the village and faculty and staff are every bit as important in our thoughts about testing and tracing as our student population. And we're not going to bring people back to Hamilton and not think about the, the residents of Madison County or the village of Hamilton. Though they, we need to have capacity to test them too, for instance. And so these are principles that guide our work. Then we get into the minutiae. There have been lots and lots of rabbit holes, I assure you, in these conversations. And I think as a task force co-chair with Professor Holm, Jeff Holm, uh, associate professor in biology, we have, you know, really tried to, you know, sometimes it's useful 
to go into those tangents. And sometimes we say, that's probably not our purview in the end, right? Like there is another group of people at the university that when we release our recommendations, we have to trust that they'll figure that out. One example of that is dining. We could, as a task force, think through every possible permutation for dining in a de-densified environment and that we would need to move away from buffet lines and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's not a good use of this task force's time. What we need to say is we need to open dining halls using the best sort of public health guidance at the time and then trust that our colleagues, Joanne Borfitz and Cody Tipton and our partners at Chartwells will be able to deliver that plan safely. Um, and so that's, that's one of those examples of a rabbit hole we can go down because we think it's important as a part of this plan, but we also know how competent our staff is across the university. And if we um, say that we're reopening in August or October or whenever, whatever our recommendation is, we, there is a little bit of our need to um, make sure that those kind of processes are situated in the right place. Um, and so this is the kind of work we've been doing. We've been meeting um, in any, probably every week, about six hours. We do two, three hour meetings because we found that like living in that space, like really getting in there and living in it is so much better than plugging in for an hour and an hour and an hour. Back to my point about pivoting, <laughs> the schizophrenia of my days. It's nice to just have three hours to work this out. Um, and then then Jeff and I really spend the two days in between our meetings to really like refocus, grab new resources and information. We've been using a Slack site. So my first time to ever use Slack, just kind of cool. It's not an advertisement and they're not a sponsor of today's podcast. <laughs> they should but, be. Yeah. I know, but I, take I, it. Uh, I do think that that has been a great way of us being able to trade ideas and find resources. Again, as I mentioned, so much comes out every day that it's nice to have that be crowdsourced by the task force and to sort of elevate the things that we think are most relevant for the conversations we've been having. Um, so all in all, a, a great process. I, I feel really confident in this team or this task force. Um, and um, I think we'll all be glad when we've sent our recommendations to President Casey. It's not that our job will be over. In fact, I think that the presidential task force um, is uh, has been announced to continue through next June, which means that I think that we'll need to continue thinking about things all year. But the big and heavy lift, of course, is a decision for the fall. So you mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, you touched on the residential commons. And, you know, for those that are, are unaware, you know, each commons is a community within which students live for their first two years um, up on campus, um, and then they continue to affiliate with their commons throughout the four years that they are here. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the commons and how it's changed since you started at Colgate? I know it's gone through several kind of iterations and you know some changes and adjustments throughout the years to try and fine tune everything. Um, tell me where it is now. I think it's in a great place right now. Um, in some ways, what um, what it needs now is time. <laughs> um, some of the best things on a college campus are those things that are considered traditions and that are in the culture. And it is hard to change student culture. In some ways it's hard and sometimes it's easy. You know, it depends on really what it is. I, I think that we're always blessed that we have students coming in and out. A quarter of the class every year is new. 
that can give us an opportunity to introduce new traditions. <laughs> Maybe after three years, feel like they've been 30 years old because of that high turnover. And in other ways, it, it takes time to build rituals and um, particular traditions of each of the four residential commons. And I think we'll continue to continue to evolve the commons. No question. That is that that is. They're not done. It isn't like they're done and we just now need time, but we do need time and we need some additional evolution. For instance, we might want a fifth residential commons, not because the institution's growing in size, but because I think that there is some acknowledgement that the sizes of the commons because of the inventory of the residential, you know, so so one of our commons is, this, is one building. Hancock Commons is, you know, sort of one location, whereas Brown Commons is multiple residence halls. So there are differences in numbers of students who occupy those four commons. And we think it might be in the future when we replace Gatehouse, as an example, we might create a fifth residential commons to make them smaller. That's an evolution that I see that would be great. But in some ways, what we need is all four years to have been affiliated with a commons and affiliated for their two years and living up the hill for those two years. And so each one of those things has been one of those. So we introduced the commons, obviously in 2014. Initially, that was just one commons. Then we introduced the second commons. And then in one year, we introduced third and fourth. And now all four class years, I'm sorry, all, all of the class in the first year class is, sell, is assigned to one of four commons. But it, it, has, it is not the case that for all four years of students right now, that was their experience. So that's hard when a first year comes in and asks a senior, tell me about this commons. What is this? And they say, we don't know. <laughs> like, we don't know what that whole thing is that they're doing, right? And so you don't have the sort of the reinforcing nature of the commons yet. It, it's, it's soon to happen because we'll... Um, Within one more year, all four years of students will have lived in a common. But this is the first year where sophomores will not live in the townhouses, as an example, and will live on the hill as a part of the commons. As of the introduction of Jane Pynchon and Burke Hall in, in last sort of, you know, this past fall afforded us that opportunity to bring those sophomores up the hill. Well, it'll take now a few more years for sophomores never to have lived in the townhouses, right? right? And so time is what we need in order for this to feel as if it is as Colgate as Colgate itself. And, you know, Harvard benefits from this. The, the Harvard House system was introduced in the 1930s, um, you know, with Lowell House as its first one. And, and it's had decades of opportunity to create interesting, quirky traditions for each of the upper class houses. And they each have a mascot and a shield. And we just introduced the iconography for the, the commons in January of this year. Um, so they now all four have a really beautiful shields, thanks to your division uh, communications. And that will take some time for students to sort of, sort of find a, affection for that. Um, and so I think that what we, what we have seen since my time here is, a, I think, a better articulation of what the commons do. Um, I think there are more people within the faculty and staff who know what the commons are for 
And as I say that, there are still a lot who still don't know what they are and what they're for. And so that, again, I think it, uh, will happen in time. We've had four sets of commons faculty directors. Um, and uh, we were supposed to, this would have been the first, um, next, this coming fall would have been um, our first second set of directors in Hancock and Chaconi. Um, so Rebecca and Mark Shiner are inaugural directors. They're the ones who started Chaconi in our very first one. And then Antonio um, Guerrera and Pilar Neha Pereira were cycling off at the end of this year, and we would have appointed new ones, Provost Hux and myself. But we asked them to stay on for another year because of the pandemic and that it would be really difficult to bring in new commons directors at this point. So that will change too, right? So we'll see that they that those two commons will keep many of the things that have served as the foundation for their first five years. Um, and then we'll see some new faculty directors bring new fresh perspectives and ideas. And so again, over time we layer and we build richer, deeper. Um, sort of first two-year experiences. I think that we still have, um, if there are some areas that are probably weaker than they, than they will be, and, and that is a connection to the social house on Broad Street. Each of the four have a social house. And the fourth one, we have, have been lacking a fourth social house, and we will have one in the fall for Dark Colgrove Commons now, 104 Broad Street. Um, that needs to be strengthened, and so too does the upper-level peer mentorship, which has always been a part of this, really thinking about how juniors and seniors who are affiliated with those commons stay involved, at least insofar as mentoring first and second years, or coming back for signature events or things like that. But again, it takes some time for that to, uh, I think, um, become a part of our DNA. Ensuring good student conduct ultimately uh, falls in your lap at Colgate as yes, well. Yes, I realized I just now did not mention that, didn't I? I talked about <laughs> the areas. <laughs> could, could you talk a little bit about your philosophy with respect to student conduct and any special or concerted efforts you've made to change how Colgate handles conduct issues? Um, gosh, um, again, the time in which we have these, this conversation just, uh, it makes me hear the question so differently. So uh -huh. as I think about the issues that are happening across this country as we record this, um, uh, I think that there is a clear and obvious need for students to recognize the impact of their actions or inactions and to also um, work to create a community where everyone feels that they belong. And a community is formed when people adhere to that value, right? Like you can't have a community where people feel safe if not everybody wants to create such a community. And so the whole premise of a code of conduct is to ensure that we can have a community that allows every single student to find academic success, a sense of belonging, a strong sense of safety, um, so that they can take risks, like risk in who they are, right? So if you don't feel safe, how will you ever explore an identity that might be, might be a minoritized identity, right? So um, even myself, if I think about the fact that um, I didn't come out as a gay man until I was a senior in college, 
well, that was, I loved Miami and I don't know that it could have done anything differently, but I'll tell you, it wasn't until I felt safe there and had a community that I felt that I could do that. Well, we need to make sure that that happens much sooner for students. I don't want to force people out of the closet. Don't get me wrong, but I think that it's important for people when they're ready, that the community is ready um, and will, and students will find it accepting. So for me, the, the code of conduct is about personal accountability. It's about recognizing that you're one member of a community. And in order for this community to work, it, you cannot chart your course with selfishness. Like it's just not possible. Like that's not a community. That's you living your one Colgate experience and not thinking about the community as a whole. So when students will sometimes make decisions that bring them before the student conduct board. Um, and I think that one thing that's been important for me is to answer the why. Like, why do we have this rule? Why does it exist? It's not to get you in trouble. It's to sort of help students understand that this rule exists so that all students can have a positive experience. And, and so when you're noisy at three in the morning or you're doing something that might impact other students, we need to help you recognize your membership in this community, which is a privilege. Mm. And um, there are definitely instances which um, are the most public, of course, when students make decisions that really can impact the community so negatively that it calls into question students' sense of safety here. And those are, of course, heartbreaking for me. Um, and in many cases, um, actually in all cases, student conduct is um, so confidential by law that it is true that we cannot share the outcome of a conduct case, which actually also makes it difficult. Because when we talk about accountability, um, one of my strongest senses of values is, is justice. Um, and I want justice to be served. And in many ways, it can be served, but I can't always let the population know that it was. I can say that it was, but without the particulars, it sometimes feels empty for people. But at the end of the day, what I would say I've done is to try to have more individual conversations. When I arrived, there were some low-level offenses that students were notified by a letter that they had violated the code of conduct provided them the outcome and sanction, and that was it. And we now have conversations with each of those students as a part of the conduct process. It's definitely more laborious early on, but I'm convinced that over time, you will keep it from happening and there will be less recidivism in the conduct process. So it is, well, in my mind, a good ROI of staff time. Um, they're hard conversations for our staff sometimes because people are... Some students are ready to accept the decision that they made and some need time, right? It's about change management and readiness and willingness to accept what you've done. But um, I work with a really great colleague in this, uh, this area, um, Kim Taylor. Um, and Kim, I think, is one of the most empathic people I know. She is, a, is, a, is able to connect with students even in their darkest moments um, and it's such a testament to her that many students who encounter her through the conduct system, uh, that she is able to maintain and even grow positive relationships with those students after that. Mm. Um, I, um, one other thing, just to sort of give you a sense of kind of the other way in which I think about it in a more community-based way, um, I instituted community billing after arriving here, which is essentially a practice where if there is vandalism in the residence hall 
on a floor or in the basement or an exit sign or something like that. We end up actually billing every single person on that floor um, a portion of the cost for that damage, which is not always as a, um, a, a welcome policy, but um, that combined with an anonymous reporting tool allows students to come forward and it allows us to hold people accountable and it allows people to own the decisions. I think that um, early in my career, I used to not think positively about student conduct. Like it was that thing that was necessary, but not the thing that I liked. And then during my stint at Lafayette College as the Dean of Students, I oversaw student conduct there. And I actually started to um, find this as a, one of the best um, opportunities to intervene in a student's life to set them on a different path. That, that in some ways I saw conduct violations as the canary in the coal mine. And it, it allowed me to realize that students make poor decisions when something else in their career, their life isn't quite right. They might be struggling with belonging or with academics or socially, and they act out in ways that are not likely congruent with who they are. And as a result, without a conduct process, you can't intervene and actually serve as an educator. And I think that I learned, I didn't learn to love it. I grew to love it in seeing how those kind of resets, if you will, um, are probably some of the most important educational moments that I have in my career. Um, we call them teachable moments sometimes. Um, I can say, without a doubt, the students that I've written letters of recommendation for and that I'm still in touch with from Harvard and Lafayette and uh, are beca- because I came across them through the conduct process. Mm. Uh, and we forged a relationship and they um, made some different decisions after that. Uh, and so, you know, I see it as now not only necessary, but uh, sort of a, a great opportunity to be an educator. Hmm. So you, you, you kind of started down this path a little bit, but I do want to ask, given the state of the world, ongoing protest in the wake of the death of George Floyd, Can you talk a little bit about how Colgate supports students of color and maybe what Colgate can do to do to be better in that area? Yeah, we have a lot of work to do. Um, Just so much work to do. And um, I want to acknowledge all the great work that people have been doing for sure. Um, There, you know, when I arrived, there was a, a really strong contingent, 80 plus perhaps, that were working on a diversity, equity, and inclusion plan. Um, people who are, you know, committed at their core to issues of equity and diversity and inclusion. And that report, I think, did two things. Uh, It showed us, you know, some of the things that we've done um, that help not only bring students to Colgate who have not been here before for all of the systemic reasons that we know that have kept them out, but also supporting them when they get here. Um, But it also identified really dozens of recommendations of things that need to happen. And I think in the end, there were 75 or more, if I'm not mistaken, recommendations. And I actually think there could have been 150, right? Like, I I think that there are a lot of work that we need to do to address um, 
policies and procedures and our history that have, you know, really allowed Colgate to be experienced by some as um, like a flawless transition from high school. And for others, um, students of color, black students, first generation students, low income students, I think that they find there's a culture shock when they get here. And how we support those students or don't, I think, is something that we have to be waking up every day and thinking about. You cannot do this work if any single person doesn't feel that they belong here. And, um, and so for me, uh, of those recommendations, I think about 70 or um, excuse me, about 26 or so are assigned to the dean of the college division. So we have a heavy lift, um, our staff. I, it's a welcome opportunity for me, thinking about the way in which we use the first year orientation program in the whole first year to introduce students who might not have rec- like really sort of set with um, some of these concepts, to, to give them more time um, to do that in a focused and, again, safe way. I mean, I think people are concerned about dealing with these issues, and they're afraid of talking about them, that some of the majority populations, but we've got to lean into that. Um, and we've got to help them uh, confront some tough truths um, about um, the world right now. And so, uh, you know, we, we have done everything from, I mean, there are little things, but the little things I think over time will help, but it is some of the biggest things are the hardest ones. So, you know, we added to every poster across the Dean of the College Division, every poster for every event language about accessibility and being able to, uh, uh, you know, to, if you need an accommodation in order to participate in this program, please call the Office of Disability Services and Academic Support. That language didn't exist on a poster when I arrived. And I thought that was strange. Now, we may not have a lot of students in wheelchairs. We may not have a lot of students who need listening, adaptive listening technology. But I think it's important for every single student to realize their privilege. So to see that language sort of recognizes, hopefully, reminds people, wow, like there are people in this community who need accommodations. That's powerful. But there are other things that we need to do, I think, again, to make sure that students feel that this is their university. And we don't have a multicultural fraternity or sorority, as an example. And yet we have five fraternities and three sororities. And while there are some students of color in those, they're not reflective of the student population. Now, those institutions or those organizations are self-selected, right? Like the university doesn't choose who's in beta, theta, pi or in kappa, kappa, gamma. But we have been working with those communities, those chapters. All of last year, there was a DEI working group led by Amber Decker and Kristen Cothran, two staff members in my division, with the fraternity and sorority chapter presidents and also their recruitment chairs to be creating a recruitment plan for this fall that is that ensures that their incoming members are more reflective of Colgate's diversity. Hmm. But that's not enough. We need to also be asking ourselves, why is there not a multicultural fraternity or sorority? Why is there not a divine nine organization here? And how do we make that happen? Um, Because it's a powerful symbol if there isn't that opportunity. So, you know, I could go on and on on this one, Uh, particularly, again, I've been thinking a lot about it. since the release of the DEI plan last fall. But before that, um, you know, we brought in as a division last August, we did a day-long retreat at White Eagle with the dean of the college division. And we brought in some partners um, from a consulting company called Third Settlements, which were 
fabulous partners in DEI. And we went through a series of um, exercises that day to get to know one another as staff and to sort of talk about things. One of the things that came out, for instance, is the number of hidden disabilities in our division, Mm -hmm. right? Through post-it notes and anonymous opportunities for people to divulge their hidden identity. What we learned is there are so many disabilities in our division, just not ones that you can see. And we then brought Third Settlements back to do diversity, equity, and inclusion training with the first year class during orientation last year. And that was nice because our staff had worked with that team and then our students worked with that team. And we continued to focus this entire last year on DEI work. We brought in a disability services expert who works in disability law at Syracuse and did an in-service. And and we brought in Dr. Anthony Jack, um, who... Uh, work with us to talk about first-generation students and students of color in predominantly white institutions. And um, he, he actually delivered a public lecture as well. So all year long, we've been focused on it. But all it did for me, it, it, that it, it identified just how much more work we have to do. Um, and um, we really you know, I, I would suggest that probably for the rest of my career here, we will need to be working on it and I will have to hand the baton to the next Dean of the college someday who will still need to work on it. Hmm. I guess that's a good segue into my question about orientation and, um, what changes, I guess, have you pushed for, uh, to the orientation process since you've started here? And I guess, where do you see, um, or how do you see orientation changing down the road? And obviously we have the lens right now of COVID-19, but um, if if things were on a normal, you know, in-person basis. Yeah, that's a great question, Dan, um, because it's actually an area of focus for me. Um, a year ago, um, I invited a new staff member into our division, uh, Kristen Cothran, who's the assistant dean of the first and second year experience in community development. That was a position that didn't exist, but I did have an FTE line that I had um, when I got here that was open. So there was a staff member position that was open from an older position called the Dean of the First Year um, or the First Year Dean or something like that. And, And it hadn't been filled for a couple of years. And I waited a couple of years to sort of figure out what I thought we needed. And for me, um, first year orientation, which is four days at Colgate is, um, well, first of all, it's packed with so much that I'm convinced students really at some point just it goes in one ear and out the other. And there are so many more departments and um, areas that would like to get in front of students that we're still not even getting everything. And that's because the way in which orientation has been conceived of for a really long time is, I think, wrong. I think that really initially students' mindset is I just want to know that I'm safe. I want to find a friend. I want to just like get my books and hang my curtains, right? Like where they are and where we are are so different. We're like been waiting for them all summer. And then they get here and we're like, okay, let's give you all this information. And they're waiting all summer to like find a friend, get their room set up, get into classes and they're scared, you you know? And so I think that's not the time to be introducing many of the issues in a meaningful way. So some institutions I think over time have recognized there should be some welcome weeks So they've called them welcome weeks and they extend orientation for another couple of of weeks. And I did do that with um, Kristen at Lafayette. Um, 
And that helps because what it does is it, for instance, allows students to ease into a little bit more things. It also allows you, for instance, to invite students to places like the Alana Cultural Center or LGBTQ plus, or even faith-based open houses. And they can then go there without having to be so prominently leaving their cohort. Right. Like everyone will know during the first four days of orientation if you go to the LGBTQ center. But maybe if it's in the first two weeks and it's throughout, the, you know, the, there's a little bit more opportunity to go and explore who you are um, in, in a better way. But I think the reason why ultimately I created the position and invited Kristen to join me here. Uh, we had had such a great experience at Lafayette together. Um, sorry, Lafayette, <laughs> but I, I stole her and brought her here is because I want to think about the first and second year experience together. I want the commons again to serve as that foundation. I want us to think about how do we introduce students, not only to diversity, equity, and inclusion during orientation, but they need a whole year, if not two years to be continuing to dig into those issues. We need to, again, think about sexual violence and what is consent and how students have healthy relationships. You're not going to do that in the first four days. Now, you need to talk about that because there is something called the red zone on college campuses, which is essentially shows that many, many sexual assaults occur in the first six weeks of a college student's career. So we have to get in, we have to talk about consent early, but it isn't sufficient. And I think that the first and second year experience position and the way in which I'm thinking about this with Kristen and others is we need to begin the moment that a student is accepted to Colgate and it deposits. And so this whole summer, we have a 100-day engagement plan with the class of 2024. And we're engaging them through all sorts of ways this summer. Then there'll be a sort of what I would consider turning the page in chapter two when they arrive for orientation. And then chapter three is the first month. Chapter four is the rest of the fall semester. And I think the way we, um, again, developmentally deliver the content will probably mean that it, it sinks in, changes the culture for the better. We, we, we start to see students have a greater sense of belonging and feel better about being at Colgate when everyone's committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we'll see no sexual assaults perhaps someday when everybody understands what consent means because we didn't brush over it and we didn't treat it sort of like, oh, we have four days, let's do it. And then that's it. We, we run out of time. That's just not true. We have, we have more time. And so I've been working also with the faculty and the core revision committee, uh, particularly uh, Jeff Barry, who is the core university professor for the freshman seminar program, to think about could the freshman seminar program look different uh, than it does today by introducing a, um, sort of a laboratory component to the FSEM where we might be able to have content from the Shaw Wellness Institute about mindfulness and taking care of yourself and anxiety and stress. And could they also have time around IGD, intergroup dialogue? And if we had the opportunity over 12 weeks, once a week for 12 weeks in the fall semester, concurrent with the FSEM, for that FSEM group to be exploring these issues alongside the curriculum, I think we have a power, more powerful student body. And I actually would, I would contend that the freshman seminar experience, the actual curricular experience with the faculty member, will also be better when those students have explored those issues together in conversation 
because they begin to trust one another. They get to know each other better. And that would suggest to me a richer, deeper conversation about the FSM topic. So it's a win-win in my mind. I'm told that you also give a pretty good explanation between the difference of equality and equity. How do you differentiate between the two? I've, I've heard before, and I don't think that this is not my quote, so, but, but I, do, I did hear once that um, uh, you know, equality is sort of saying, hey, you guys over there that I don't really know, like come to my party, like come to my party. And, and that's a, sort of asking people to come, but equity is sort of saying in the experience, hey, I'm gonna have a party. You want to you want to help me plan that party? Want to help me pick the theme? Let's pick the music together. What who what what should it be and who should come? And that there is in some ways that's inclusion. I guess that's different between equality and equity. But that's sort of what I think inclusion really is. It's not mm-hmm. just about inviting others to something. It's about working with them to help make sure that it is going to be something that they too will enjoy and that is reflective of their interest. And that's what I think we've got to do more of with students. Here's the thing, Dan, there are, um, there are forces working against us in a lot of ways. Students want to, you know, birds of a feather flock together, right? That happens everywhere. But students, surely that's true. And it's more comfortable to be with people who are just like you. And we also have a developmental period between 18 and 22 that is truly pretty selfish. It just is because that's how you become who you are. You have to do a lot of introspection. You think about yourself. The world kind of needs to revolve around you in your mind for you to really understand. But we also have to push against that so students realize that they are part of a community and that in order for the community to support their own development, everyone needs to be committed to selflessness. So we're happy to work through some developmental challenges. We've got a frontal lobe that isn't fully formed in terms of the population we work with. I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I'm truly just saying there is a lot of work that's still happening. And we have sort of a propensity for people to stay in cohorts that look, act, think, talk like them because it's just safer. And so these are sort of all the forces that I think we work against. But... I think that's also the part of college. Like that's why you go. And that's why hopefully my staff and all of us actually have chosen to work at a residential college because it gives us the opportunity to help students develop in these ways, not only in themselves, but also the communities that they're a part of. You mentioned earlier briefly about, you know, possibly a need for another fraternity or sorority. I know there's only two sororities, right? So three sororities. Or three sororities, excuse me. Um, And you have five fraternities, is that right? Yes, yeah, exactly. So I guess, what is the thinking? How does that look moving forward? It's one of the questions uh, that I know communications receives a lot from alumni. People are very curious about the fraternity and sorority system on campus. And um, I guess, is there... Um, a time frame for bringing another fraternity or sorority on board? Is there, are fraternities and sororities not the future? I guess, what, how do you see um, fraternity and sorority at life and how its role kind of um, intermingles with everything else going on on campus? Um, yeah, so there's a lot there. Um, I think what I'll say is when, when, earlier when I talked about student health services evolving so much in 30 years, but probably the only thing that's changed more than that is fraternity and sorority um, over the last three decades. 
Um, that's been that's true at Colgate. That's true everywhere. Um, there were you know there were many many more nationally recognized fraternities and sororities here and almost every institution compared to where we are today. Maybe not the SEC schools and big schools, but but smaller places and some schools, of course, have gotten rid of them altogether. Um, and um, gosh, we still we see national you know there are lawsuits in place right now at, at Harvard, for instance, around sort of fraternities and single sex organizations and the like. So we're in it, like, and I think it is evolving. And I think our students change. I mean, that's the thing about all of the work that we've not really talked about yet today, but um, our practice can never stay static because our students are always changing. And this is an example. We have student, a student generation that is more committed to social justice, thankfully, than any that I've worked with before. I welcome that. But it also, um, it means that there are students who are questioning the value of single sex organizations. And are they still contemporary? Or is that an outmoded way of affiliation? Should we be thinking not only about multicultural fraternities and sororities, but what about co-educational ones? Um, And there are people thinking about this. Maybe they've always been thinking about it, but maybe there's a critical voice now. You know, there's enough of them that I feel like it's in the the dialogue that's happening. And I think the, the future is a, a, rec- a reckoning with the existing organizations we have. That, that's just going to be true. There are, we've seen too many headlines around hazing and sexual violence and misogyny and, and homophobia to suggest that they can continue in that space and be relevant and interesting to students, right? Like, I just think that if they continue, the numbers will dwindle because the number of people who want to be a part of that kind of organization will, will, will decrease. And, and I think we'll also see at the same time that reckoning happens, which I am really hopeful that we can help fraternities be the very best sent, uh, um, sort of pe- organizations that they can be, right? Through a, a really great accreditation program where they demonstrate their contributions to the community in philanthropy and in service and in leadership and in scholarship. Right where we we give them goals that they must um, own, you know, to 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 achieve, and that that is how recognition is considered. So I would like to see fraternities and sororities remain personally because I think that affiliation is important, and for some students that's really important. And I don't know why I'd want to take away something that is important to some students, but they do need to be positive contributions to the campus. That is, I'm not just gonna have organizations that are like not useful and helpful in promulgating what we value and what our organizations should be doing. Um, and that's not to say that they're not, but I think that there's room for improve, improvement. Um, then I think that we will see a concurrent sort of movement to think about co-educational organizations. And I think we have some of those, by the way, now. I think at outdoor education in some ways, a little bit like that. I think yeah. that Canocioni, a little bit like that. Um, Maroon um, News. I, I think, Maroon, you know, you know yeah. I think that there are, there, there, there are sort of organizations that serve a similar purpose. They just don't have Greek letters associated mm-hmm. with them. But I also think that we will see multicultural fraternities and sororities. But here's the, the here's what makes it a little complicated. For a national organization, I, I believe strongly in national organizations at Colgate. And, and I know that there's disagreement about that, that maybe we should have local chapters. 
for instance, and some schools do. But I think that part of the benefit of a fraternal or, uh, you know, Panhellenic or an, an IFC chapter is the networking that happens sort of with other organizations around the country, but also the support, the leadership conferences, the magazines, the, uh, you know, the chapter advisors that come from national headquarters, right? It, it's sort of a wraparound support. We provide stuff, but so do the national headquarters. And so I do think that national organizations are important. And that also means that national organizations need to want to have a chapter at Colgate. And, and it's, a, it's a financial, in many ways, a financial consideration. Like, is there enough interest and enough interest that can be sustained for us to create a chapter at Colgate? And so part of this creation of a multicultural fraternity or sorority or a co-educational one is hearing from national headquarters that they do want to create another chapter here and that there's enough students who are interested in it to sort of make it viable. And so during my time at Lafayette, we, we were able to bring in new chapters um, during my last couple of years there. Um, and I think that this will be what we, where we go now, is sort of reaching out to these organizations. Um, a new dean of students just began on Monday, uh, Dorsey Spencer, and I'm psyched that um, he is here after a national search in the fall and an appointment. He finished out his spring at uh, Florida State and, and now joined us. He has a lot of experience in this area and will be a great partner to me to really help shepherd students through this process. Um, and then, of course, we also have to uh, think about the sort of viability of it here in terms of about housing and whether or not, for instance, a, a new fraternity or sorority e equates to the, a chapter house, right? We're limited in the number of those houses we have. So maybe we see a, a, a multiple step process where we have a chapter, maybe that chapter is housed in something besides a Broad Street house for a while until a house opens up. Um, or it could just be like my own um, alma mater, where all of the sororities are disaggregated from housing. You know, they all have meeting spaces and all have chapter rooms that they gather in, but all of the women there live in residence halls and interest groups and other places, not in a sorority house. So I think there are other ways for us to think about it. What we've got to do is be creative because this has been a challenge for Colgate for a long time. And um, I definitely am not suggesting that I've got all the answers, but what I would suggest is we've got to get ourselves out, out of the either or. The binary has been kind of where we've been for a little while, and I think we've got to move beyond that. I think that the entire system will improve with a little more competitiveness and a little bit more, um, a, a few more chapters. I think that, again, if we could create a co-educational or a multicultural, that will also relieve some stress in the system. Um, but, um, of course for me, you know, I would, I would definitely not want to suggest that if we have a multicultural organization or a co-educational one, then in any way that lets the existing fraternities and sororities off the hook for strong diversity, equity, inclusion plans. That for me, it, it is not, that is not a solution. Um, and, and so I, these are all things that I think we have to contend with moving forward. And we, you know, again, alcohol and other drug use and hazing and sexual violence, like all of those things are really important. And I'm not suggesting that they're synonymous with fraternities and sororities, please. Like there are definitely other organizations that have been complicit in that too. Um, but I think that it is true that the research shows that those issues 
are also, they have a predominance in those organizations. And so we just have, this is that reckoning that I'm talking about that we've got to do. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. Um, Pardon the pun. And uh, I know that fitness is important on any college campus. And I hear you take a pretty active role at Colgate by leading a spinning class occasionally. Yeah. What is what? Tell me, do you have students in the class? And if so, what do they think? And what is your favorite song to spin to? Oh my gosh. Oh, now you should have given me a heads up on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, um, I do, I love spinning. Um, I love, love, love it. It is my therapy. It is the way that I uh, personally decompress. Um, I, I rode this morning for about 50 minutes. Um, and I love teaching and educating, right? Like these are the things that I love. And so what's nice is that I spend lots of time on my own. And I, this is important for me, but what I love is to be able to then help others achieve their own personal fitness goals. And so to be able to combine a love of spinning and cycling with teaching and, and sort of cheerleading, if you will, has been, um, oh my God, it's one of my favorite parts of the week. So I do teach on a weekly basis. Um, I wish I could teach more. It, it's, it's tough to sort of get scoot out of the office in time for, you know, 530 class. Um, but I do love it. And we do have, I have a lot of students in the class, um, but faculty and staff too, which I love. That's also great. I, um, I've taught actually for years, you know, probably more than a decade at this point. And I've taught at private clubs where it's all adults. I've taught at Lafayette where it's largely students. I think I like the mix. I think it's really fun to sort of see a faculty or staff member sweating alongside a student. It's sort of, again, in a way, it sort of said, look, we're we're, we're kind of a part of a community. Like we all, it's sort of when you saw your teacher in grade school in the grocery store and you're like, she eats too, right? And so I think it's a good way to, to, to bring people into a common um, I, you know, my approach is to recognize that students and staff and basically cycling participants in my class all have different fitness goals. And in the same way, I sort of approach my work with students. I recognize that I'm trying to help each of them do whatever it is that they've come to do. Maybe it's to de-stress. Maybe it's to, to sweat. Maybe it's to achieve a fitness goal or to lose weight or to repair an injury. Um, whatever it is, I think that it's trying to teach to a multitude of people. Um, and uh, my favorite song, so I love EDM music. Um, I don't know if people probably would not guess that. Um, maybe they would. I don't know. I did an EDM ride this morning for 25 minutes and also an 80s rock ride. Ah, <laughs> so, nice. So, but uh, I guess, um, so I'd say the genre is EDM. The favorite sort of song um, Probably something by either Calvin Harris or the Chainsmokers. Oh, nice. uh, again, sort of funny that I'm, but I think that they just lend themselves ni- nicely to a great um, sprint in, in, on a bike. Huh. Um, I, I used to run triathlon or uh, compete in triathlons, and I haven't been able to do that here. Um, I'd love to sort of sort of get back into that too, and even maybe sort of think about working with students who might have a similar aspiration and think about how we do that to sort of another level um, of engagement with students. But fitness is a great um, way to connect with people. And my job sort of in some ways makes it difficult to connect on that human level with students. It's probably one of the biggest, um, in my mind, uh, liabilities of the job is that as a vice president, dean of the college, there's sort of a lot of assumptions made, I think, about 
my relationship and my supportive students or um, just the ability to kind of connect on a human level. My spinning class seems to sort of um, reduce all those barriers. Like they seem to go away, maybe because, because I'm yelling at them and I'm telling them what to do in ways, but I'm also sweating alongside of them. I think that there is no hierarchy. I'm Paul in that class, not Dean McLaughlin. Um, and I need to find more opportunities to do that with students because it really is the reason I went into the profession. Um, and, you know, as many meetings as I've been in lately, I also need to find um, ways to still have joy and to connect with the, so, you know, the whole inspiration of this field for me. And that leads us to question 13. You made it to the end here. Right. Um, the, the 13th question is generally a little different and, uh, you know, try to be a little bit more fun. Um, but um, I guess kind of along the lines of the spinning class, I'm curious what the Dean of the college at Colgate does to unplug. What, what is your, um, how do you step away from everything at the end of the day? And, um, I guess what brings you back? Um, you know, I guess what recharges your batteries? Um, good question. It's not one thing. Um, it, it, but it, uh, well, first of all, it's, um, it's important for me to get off of technology. Um, I'm not a, I don't, I don't really love technology. <laughs> now that here we are on Zoom and <laughs> computers and, and I, you know, I, but, but the truth is I'd rather be with people in person and I, I would rather sort of um, not be on email and I don't love like surfing the web, stuff like yeah. that. You know, yeah, yeah. I, I'm a newspaper guy still. Like I like to read an actual piece of paper, but um, that's actually hard to do in this job. That's probably one of the hardest things. But but if I can recharge, it's to say, I'm not going to look at my email today. I'm not going to get on my computer. And I'm going to assume if there's something really bad, someone will call me. Yeah, <laughs> the phone right. isn't turned right. off, but <laughs> I'm trying not to look at it. And, yeah. um, you know, I would say that the next thing is to get my hands dirty. Um, you know, right now that means sort of gardening uh, around my house and um, but I grew up on a farm in Ohio, uh, about a hundred acre farm in Southeast Ohio. I was driving a tra tractor um, well before a car. Uh, so by the time I got into the car, I was like, oh yeah, like it wasn't a big deal at all. Um, and we had oil wells on the farm and, you know, um, my father got pretty sick during, when I was 14 uh, and, and ended up dying when I was 18. And so I ended up kind of really needing to do a whole hell of a lot of farming through my high school years. And it's a little bit of a return to, it's like a, it's a, a recentering of kind of who I am. And, and it's so different from the job that I have. Um, I don't, you know, if I have any calluses in my hands at all, it's just because the last two months I've been outside working in the garden. But um, I want more than that long term. Like I actually like to have a small farm with, a, you know, a few animals and, you know, sort of return to that, which is funny. For a long time, I tried to kind of run away from it. <laughs> I, maybe I had too much too soon in my, in my life. But um, that I love. Um, I, we've already talked about cycling a little bit um, as a thing to do. Uh, my husband and I went hiking a couple of weeks ago. Um, up in the Adirondacks. So I do like to get out into nature and to listen to the sounds and sort of see the vistas. I went to school at UVM uh, for my master's degree. And there was something about driving to campus every day and seeing the green mountains and the Adirondack mountains that just sort of reminded me of my place in the world, like my little, little place in the world based on these big mountains uh, and Lake Champlain as a big body of water. My favorite place is the ocean, no question, or any large body of water. Because again, it also provides some perspective. 
um, for me. So those are all ways that I think I try to kind of regularly cycle through trips to the ocean, trips to the mountain, biking, gardening, um, those kind of things all do restore me. That was 13. Dee McLaughlin, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, you joining us. Thanks so much, Dan. I, I appreciated the conversation too. I do want to take a moment to address the national uh, discussion going on and the national uh, protests um, as they relate to the death of George Floyd um, and the use of um, police force um, against um, you know communities of color. And I just want to state unequivocally uh, here at 13 that Black lives do matter. We care. And um, we hope to bring more voices um, to the front that can talk more about the um, injustices and inequalities uh, in our country. And I do want to thank everyone for listening. And as always, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit ColgateMagazine.com and ColgateResearchMagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.